Hello and welcome to another episode of What's That Noise, the podcast that pursues matters of confusion and clarity, however and whatever that means. Today for the second week in a row, I'm going solo and we're coming to you from Winnipeg, Manitoba. We're sitting down with Jeffrey Monahan, assistant professor at Carleton's Institute for Criminology and Criminal Justice, and Fahad Ahmad, a PhD candidate in public policy at Carleton. We'll be discussing a topic that I hold near and dear to my own uh, research, uh, which is issues related to this idea of radicalization. In many ways, this concept has become the dominant framework by which we understand modern terrorism, and as we'll see in today's episode, it has become riddled with confusion and noise. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the discussion. I'm very, very happy to be sitting down today with Fahad and Jeff. Uh, we all work on issues that are very, very close, and I've really been following uh, their work for the past several years. So I knew the moment that we sort of got in the same place that we would have to sit down for a discussion like this. So thank you so much for agreeing to come on the pod. How are you guys doing today? Great. Thanks. Doing well. Uh, yeah. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. So we are at the uh, University of Winnipeg. We're, we're uh, recording this at the University of Winnipeg. We are at the uh, Accessing Justice Interdisciplinary Perspectives on Access, Justice, Law, and Order, um, which is uh, housed uh, or, or put on by the Center for Interdisciplinary Justice Studies at the University of Winnipeg. So it's awesome to, um, to be here and to chat um, with these two great scholars of terrorism and radicalization. Uh, and I want to start off uh, just introing you and your projects and uh, kind of chat about what it is you're doing right now in this field of, of so-called radicalization studies. Uh, so maybe, uh, Jeff, if you wanted to, uh, uh, to fill us in on what you're working on, that'd sure. be great. So uh, a lot of my research looks at national security policing practices. Um, so, uh, you know, my research over the last five years or so has just looked at different ways in which national security policing, uh, it ends up being practiced on the ground in terms of trends in Canada. And this is really kind of, you know, a lot of my research started in the late 2010s and, and, you know, maybe over the last 10 years or so and really seeing how the war on terror started to be more and more of a domestic form of policing mm -hmm. and kind of the transition and the, and, and the transformation of the war on terror from kind of a war abroad to all kinds of more domestic policing. So that's how, you know, my interest in radicalization in particular kind of grew out of that. A lot of my earlier research and, you know, another line of my research is how the the infrastructure and the resources and even the language of national security ends up being redirected towards social movements. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, my interest in radicalization really kind of grew out of that because this term radicalization started really kind of picking up and being bandied about in the, you know, mid uh, late 2000s. Um, and that's really when this notion of radicalization studies that Fahad and I are, were talking about today really started to, to aspire to be more of a, a science. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then, you know, I really started looking at different forms of Muslim pro profiling and how radicalization and this notion of extremism that's tied to radicalization really uh, ends up being a justification for Muslim profiling and really, really invasive forms of policing and, and stereotyping and, and profiling that, 
that targets Muslims. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really another line of, of research that I did. And how did you get started in this, this area, Fahad? So my, my uh, journey to radicalization starts in a, in a, in a, with different beginnings, uh, if you will. Uh, I, before starting the PhD program in public policy at Carlton, I used to be the interim CEO and prior to that, the COO of an organization called Sulia. Uh, which started in the post-9-11 environment in response to the very one-sided and stereotypical. And what Sulia tries to do is it enables people-to-people contact, so it brings young people together from the Middle East and North Africa, as well as Europe and the U.S. in a cross-cultural dialogue program, leveraging new media technologies, in part to help break down some of the stereotypes, to build cooperation, understanding, uh, but also to build connections uh, informed in large part by contact theory uh, in conflict resolution, but also uh, the fact that once people have relationships with outgroups, uh, their impression of outgroups changes dramatically. And uh, as I was doing that work, increasingly I was running up against uh, a fairly practical issue that the policy and the funding environment actually constrained a lot of the work that you can do within an organization and an institution no matter how grand your ambitions. Um, And that's kind of why I got drawn into public policy, into thinking about public policy and wanting to step back and think about it somewhat holistically. Uh, The idea of radicalization and counterterrorism, to me, it it, it drew me in because, uh, A, we at Solia were uh, constantly being asked by the American version of counter-radicalization program called Countering Violence Extremism, or CVE, to implement dialogue programs. And that intrigued me because traditionally, the way we thought about our work was uh, drawing from principles of conflict resolution, uh, conflict theory, and not so much principles of uh, security. Um, So as I entered the PhD program, I was grappling with a question about what is the role that nonprofits and community organizations play once they are asked to perform a security practice, a security act, which is the implementation of a well-meaning program of bringing people together. But what does that do? What are the implications for organizations uh, once they're asked to do that and once they perform that act? And that's really what my dissertation, proposed dissertation, will explore. I, you know, I have to still defend my proposal uh, in short order. Uh, and I hope that, uh, that the questions uh, that, that will inform that project, um, uh, one example is uh, what, what uh, Jeff and I presented today at the conference, which is, for example, how do theories of violence that the field of criminology has already informed us about, how does that help inform radicalization uh, and terrorism studies? Um, and, and all of these are various pieces that I think we need to bring together to really understand this concept uh, of radicalization and its broader impact to community organizations and ultimately to communities that are impacted by these practices um, who are already marginalized and who are already subject to poorer socioeconomic outcomes uh, or marginalizations of other sorts, whether it's along along race or identity. And uh, where do these security practices, how are they situated and, and, you know, how how do they impact society at large? Mm -hmm. And how did you two get 
together. It seems like this is a, a very interesting dynamic uh, between you two, a, a policy-oriented scholar and a criminologist. How did you two get together on this project? Do you want me to tell you tell this story? We might have di- <laughs> oh, different I hear a versions. Story. I like, okay. like I, I should like be it. put yeah. in the uh, in the sequestered room, and then we'll each tell our version. Well, go let ahead. Me, let me let me start. Uh, so, as I was writing uh, my proposal, the first iteration of my proposal, uh, my very first semester in the PhD program in, in 2016, I came across a scholar, Suraj Lakhani, who is based in the UK. Uh, so he was my starting point, and I actually looked at who else has used Suraj Lakhani's work? He's not, you know, he's not cited all that much. But Jeffrey Monahan is one of the few people who cited him uh, in, in, a, in a paper. And so that's how I came across Jeff's name. I found out that he's at Queens, because I didn't know he was at Carlton at the time. And that's how I contacted you. Uh, that's how I found you and I contacted you, only to find, uh, to my amazement, that he's actually at Carlton. So, so I sent you an email and, and that's when I swung by and we had our first chat in like, I don't know, September, October of 2016. Yeah. And to further that story. So Fahad emails me and he's like, yeah, you know, I'm working on radicalization. I'm like, great, come on and meet. And then, so we have this meeting and, and Fahad's kind of, he's, he's spelling out his, his, his proposal and he, uh, you know, I think you had just finished first semester and you were like, your proposal at the time was a quantitative proposal. And you were basically saying that you wanted to get the quantitative data to be able to make an argument that social integration um, and that various forms of the welfare state somehow diminish, I shouldn't say somehow, but have a, a correlation to diminishing political violence and radicalization. And I, and I said, essentially, you know, that sounds like a nice project, but... I'm not a quantitative scholar and, you know, you read my stuff and I don't think that we should maintain this term radicalization. I think it does more damage than, 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 than it helps us deal with questions of violence. And Fahad was like, yeah, okay, okay, okay. And, and I think you actually left and then you emailed me back. And, and I was thinking I was just going to have this nice breakup. You know, I don't, you know, it doesn't fit for a project. I can't be on your committee. And then Fahad, he, my memory blurs a little bit, but Fahad actually made a, a really compelling case, essentially saying, listen, I get it. And I share your critique and I totally get it. But the fact of the matter is, we need stats and radicalization. And because radicalization has such resonance as a term, as a concept and a kind of a kind of policy wannabe kind of resonance, we need stats to be able to go to people who are, are furthering this agenda. If we want to roll this agenda back, replace it, do anything with it, we need to speak their language. And he basically said, listen, man, like you're just kind of sitting in the academy talking shit like we need to go out and we need to do something about it. And I was like, damn, this guy pushed back hard and I accept the argumentation. I, I think it's totally legit. So I jumped on the committee. And so for the for the listeners, Fahad is sitting here shaking his head uh, as Jeff is saying this. Why are you shaking your head? I'm not shaking my head, but because I think that uh, I don't disagree with what Jeff is saying. It's just it's the sequencing of of uh, of two different things. So uh, when Jeff and I first spoke, uh, I was putting together a mixed methods proposal, if you remember, where it no, had a I added quality to your proposal, man. Okay, okay. 
I, then I have it wrong. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. No, it was a quant proposal. It was a quantitative statistics proposal to begin with, and I and then, you know, as we, you know, I think the the qualitative part got built in. Yeah, and I think it's a beautiful. I think it's a an amazing project. I, I like the noise that we are we're getting at here. The noise of misremembering things. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean the the quant stuff. It was front and center at the time because I was taking a course in econometrics at the time. Uh, that was my first semester. And coming out of it, I was working on a paper that was doing exactly what Jeff said, which is kind of looking at the relationship between a country level uh, social integration, social and economic integration policies, and uh, events of political violence, mm. which was mm. the only way that at that point in time, uh, I uh, could operationalize radicalization, which is, you know, obviously we can talk about why that's a poor conceptual uh, or operationalization of radicalization, but with the given data set, that's all, that's all that was possible. Uh, and uh, I actually produced a paper out of, the, out of that, and last summer, um, around the same time, uh, you know, with Jeff's uh, sort of... Uh, um, under his advice and under his encouragement, I presented that paper at a critical criminology conference. So we did have a lot of uh, back and forth about that particular paper. Uh, and, you know, Jeff offered me some thoughts and comments on it. Uh, but ultimately, like when I put together the, our first conversation, one thing is true that it was very, I thought it was very, sort of, you know, uh, the way I, I it was, it was very simpatico, I thought our first meeting, like, you know, I, I got a lot out of that interaction. And uh, it certainly helped me think about what I was putting together at that time. So it helped me think about the contours of that proposal. It was, it was actually the Shirk proposal, I was applying for a Shirk grant at that time. And, uh, and, you know, Jeff gave me some very, very good feedback that ultimately made it what it became, um, you know, when I when I actually put it in. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, I think all of those things are true. And, uh, I did develop a very strong quantitative proposal in my first iteration, um, and, uh, ultimately turned that into a paper as well. But I'm actually where I am today with that is a lot more. And, you know, based on other feedback that I've got is that the quantitative piece actually does, I mean, there is a methodological question that we're always, we're constantly, grappling with uh, as we are doing these type of studies is whether we take radicalization as a given, which quantitative studies force you to do because you're working with whatever data set that's available to you, yeah. or you challenge the contours of radicalization and, and ask whether that's a legitimate way of thinking about the problem, which uh, qualitative studies and you know, ethnographic studies and um, sort of more critical studies help you to do. And how do you reconcile those two methods in a mixed methods project is is a non-trivial question, which, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm learning and certainly sort of, you know, like our conversations have pointed out. And you, you, you kind of speak to the state of the discipline right now, if you will, in, in terms of uh, this preoccupation with fundable radicalization research or counter-radicalization research that gives you solid measurables and solid interventions. And it seems like that's where most of the research in this area has gone so far. And it seems like you're trying to counter that a little bit. Yeah, you know, so 
part of what we were here in Winnipeg talking about is some of our research specifically on how radicalization studies as this little kind of emerging pocket subdiscipline is interacting with criminology and what criminology mm -hmm. has developed over the last 40-ish whatever years, wherever you want to set the benchmark, around violence, about what we know about violence and these kinds of things. So one of the interesting things that we've kind of found in mapping the the kind of the the change in radicalization and you know Fahad and I are both kind of skeptical towards the science of radicalization but I think one thing that is you know uh one of the core characteristics of radicalization studies of the last 10-15 years is that it has an incredible shape-shifting ability it is it you know it came out with abundance it came out with this kind of like you know this incredible confidence and it's kind of it's it's maintained this confidence despite the fact that it's really kind of reinvented itself and reinvented its its methods and its objectivity a couple of different times and changed and you know from a distance it looks like nuanced changes but it's fairly significant changes in terms of what it's claiming of of measuring um and one interesting finding that we've had in terms of these kind of dueling methods is that in the last five or so years there's been more and more qualitative methodology that's been visited in terms of trying to explain radicalization as a process. And what's interesting is all the early stuff, a lot of the early stuff is uh, relying on psych. It's relying on very kind of psychological, risky-ish type forms of quantitative assessments yeah. that are very individualistic. It's very kind of almost quasi-actuarial trying to figure out or, you know, psychometric kind of forms of, of evaluation. There is a movement in the last few years that's trying to get at more qualitative forms of, you know, some of the narrative school and a little bit of, of crimmy stuff on, on, on subcultures and, and victimizations, another recent iteration. So there ends up being, and that's part of, you know, there's just kind of ruckus debate within radicalization of, you know, what is radicalization? And I think there has been a recognition even within the people who want to maintain the concept that we do need to venture out into these more kind of qualitative experiential methods to understand experience. Yeah. And I think this adds to the rupture within radicalization studies in a way. I think it actually in a way has created more of an existential crisis within or an epistemological crisis within the, the sub-discipline. Yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree with all of that. Uh, I think that the challenge also is that it does. Uh, so, so the thing about quantitative methodology, I mean, what, what the type of data that's available to you also determines to a, to a large extent the quality of the research that you're doing using quantitative methods. And typically with radicalization, there are a few characteristics, right? A, it's, the problem is, is framed as a very severe problem. But in fact, there are very few numbers of people who, quote, radicalize if we, you know, I mean, assuming we understand what that even means. But let's assume that we have this sort of general lingo to 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 understand what it is uh, there are very few people who actually end up radicalizing and certainly even fewer that end up radicalizing and committing acts of terror or planning acts of terror which is really the end game of security agencies that's what they're trying to prevent if there's data available 
that's that's protected under national security interests. So you really social scientists can't can't do much because they don't have access to that data. So they're relying on secondary and tertiary data. So you're talking to family members, looking at media reports, which frankly are, you know, basically amplifying the alarm around this this concept of radicalization. Um, and so you're working with small N, what we call small N research, so basically just don't have enough data. The data is not necessarily reliable. It's heavily biased. So any any sort of inferences you're making from the data using quantitative methods are frankly just a function of the data that you're using, and the data set is acknowledged to be poor. So you can't really make any gen- generalizable social science claims about radicalization. So that's one sort of methodological problem with the quantitative approach, mm-hmm. which is why everything that Jeff said, which is visiting the qualitative methods becomes so important because those individual in-depth experiences, uh, you know, situating individual experiences within the social, social and uh, ecological context becomes super important. And it's not just about the individual and the act, but it's about sort of this individual and this political arena in the social arena in uh, you know living lives in a in a interconnected society uh, is what we need to think about and i mean a there's no good data on that b there's no good way to model that really i mean it's a fairly complex model if you think about it and therefore uh, people tend to uh, you know move that to the margins and focus on stuff that's easily accessible or that's easily modeled, resulting, in our opinion, in poor science, really. And that's why the science keeps evolving. And because the, because the data is, is, is just, you know, it's empirically weak. I'm, I'm interested in how do we remedy this? Do we have a, a, a remedy? We talked about a little bit, in, well, you talked about it uh, a little bit in your presentation. Do we have some remedies that we can move forward to solve some of these issues, not just with data, but also with theoretical approaches to, to this idea, this very, very muddy concept of radicalization where one, we don't know what exactly we're talking about. We talk about terrorism and radicalization, and we can't really define either. I think it's a great question. I don't know if you... I mean, I'll just say one thing on that. I do appreciate you bringing up the the fact that uh, the concept, uh, you know, is, uh, as many have said, you know, we're not really saying this. It's not a novel idea, but the concept of radicalization is a source of confusion. Uh, And the reason for that is because, uh, in our view, it's basically a label, right? Mm -hmm. It's not really a concept. It's a label to indicate how... uh, Muslims in the West commit acts of political violence. I mean, that's really what it means when you when you talk in in general parlance to to people about you know when I tell people I'm working on a project on radicalization, they know what I'm working on, right? They don't need to ask me what is radicalization. Are you talking about left wing radicals? Are you talking about like neo Nazis? Nobody asks me that. They know right away. Yeah, you're working on an issue that deals with Muslims committing acts of, you know, political violence. We use political violence as really what in their in most people's mind, acts of terrorism, right? And so radicalization then I think becomes a a, a means through which people are drawn towards extreme ideologies, perhaps, is what, what most people think. Uh, and those extreme ideologies, you know, necessary necessarily draw them towards uh, an act of violence. And that's where the source of confusion comes from because uh, we 
you know, I mean, we don't believe that uh, a extreme ideologies are problematic because extreme. I mean, you know, I think most human beings have some sort of extreme ideology, and we don't even we don't know how you go from that state to a state of committing an act of violence. Um, you know, nobody, for example, is concerned about the fact that. Uh, people are bigots. That's an extreme view. You know, people are racists. That's an extreme view. Uh, but nobody Even defining could... extreme view is an issue. Well, what's extreme? Well, it depends on absolutely, perspective. absolutely. And what you think is absolutely norm and, and, and dip- non-deviant. Absolutely, and it has to be always against what is the prevailing political and social norm. So, really, what we're talking about is a deviance, as you very, very aptly pointed out, from the norm. And uh, and un- until we get a handle on what we're talking about. You know, all of the questions that you said can't really, I don't think, uh, be grappled with properly. One of the most fascinating parts about this kind of evolution of the concept, if we want to call it evolution or just kind of meandering of the concept, is that it's, you know, it's, I think there's an earnest effort to try and produce more sophistication in terms of defining what this phenomenon is, this movement, this kind of pathway, whatever we want to characterize it as but when it really comes down to it like you're saying fahad when it really comes down to talking about radicalization and even identifying what it is it's really about what we call quote unquote extreme beliefs and it's the anchor point that's never been lost and there's all kinds of effort to to move indicators towards different forms of action and different forms of mobilization and i put scare quotes up there um and but what we always come back to extremist beliefs and identifying and, and defining what extremist beliefs are and i don't see a way for radicalization studies to get out of that corner and what i've found over the last few months in terms of our project our project is really started from the point of a recommendation that i made fahad to fahad saying you know what maybe crim theory on violence can actually inform uh inform discussions on radicalization and i think you know i've tried to come in to this exploration uh thinking that you know maybe there's something that we can take in terms of this depth of knowledge we have about violence from criminology and maybe find a way to kind of to help radicalization out and i think going through the process has made me even more critical of radicalization itself because i think there's a lot we know about violence okay and the you know the the in my opinion one of the the most important parts that criminology tells us about violence is that violence is highly contextual it's highly variable and despite all kinds of efforts to give us a comprehensive effort uh, knowledge about violence we don't have that we have no way of predicting violence or very few ways of predicting violence even the best ways of predicting violence like the psychopathic checklist are still diagnostic tools that are predictive in the very most general sense and don't tell us about this next step of action Mm -hmm. and i think radicalization studies is so stuck in an instrumentalist kind of objectives where it needs to prevent something before it happens that all of a sudden when we start visiting theories of violence we have really rich data and we have really rich theories explaining and understanding why violence has happened why violence happens and also explaining all kinds of different social environmental factors even to a certain extent individual factors that explain why violence happens but we have very few 
despite all kinds of efforts in criminology, we have very few predictive tools that is going to tell us, you know, when and where and who is going to be violent. And so I think that the more and more we look towards theories of violence, the more and more cloudy this kind of this picture of who's going to be the kind of political next terrorist or whatever becomes that much more difficult. I actually think that it makes the task of radicalization, you know, visiting criminology makes the task of radicalization more complicated. And in fact, I think from my perspective, actually makes the concept that much more of a problem. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think, again, you're both, you sound so spot on it. And in terms of my own work in this, in this field, I, I think that at the more and more we try to theorize about radicalization, the more and more I see it as a fundamentally flawed conceptual idea, as a fundamentally theoretically flawed idea that is without definition. But not only that, it, it opens a space for so much intervention yeah. and so much uh, policy, so much policing, so much surveillance, so much uh, security that it becomes this this almost uh, uh, we were just talking in a, a previous panel about like an echo chamber it becomes this sort of echo chamber that just allows a whole bunch of really really difficult or justifies a whole bunch of really challenging uh, uh, interventions while not actually defining anything we're really talking uh, here about a, a space that we've talked about in terms of crime and youth crime, gang membership for a very, very long time. This pre-crime space, as Lucia Zedner would suggest, or Sharon Pickering would suggest this pre-criminality pre space um, that once you make it the object of your criminological insight, it becomes the instrument by which we can then seek to control and to intervene upon it. And I think that that's fundamentally flawed. I think the, the logic of radicalization is a fundamentally flawed logic, and our quest to legitimize radicalization as this, this science or this subdiscipline or this specialty area might actually do some more harm than good. Uh, and I, it seems like may, maybe we're on the same page with that, but maybe we're not. Um, so I'm really interested to get your thoughts on this. The one thing I want to go back to something that Jeff said, which I think is worth noting, is there's a lot of well-meaning behind behind some of the interventions that are happening, right? So uh, I think if the the early notions of radicalization were squarely centered on, you know, ideology and frankly religiosity, but many scholars who have have moved their position in the interest of human rights, in the interest of, uh, you know, um, excessive like in response to critiques of excessive policing. And they've started to think about, well, how can we make it better? But fundamentally, the problem is there is an uneasiness about acts of political violence committed by people who are Muslims. Mm -hmm. And nobody wants to articulate that uneasiness uh, as they're navigating these questions of radicalization and terrorism. So you can always make things better, like hard policing versus soft policing, you know, invest more dollars in soft policing. That soft policing is better than hard policing. You know, you can see that even in, in national, secu uh, national security programs where, you know, increasingly there's a recognition that the better relationship we have with the community, which, what, which is what soft policing enables, 
the more we can get advanced information about the occurrence of a potential uh, future event of political violence, we can intervene early, prevent it, because that's ultimately what security agencies care about. Mm-hmm. So, but there's no escape from that. You're always caught into making things better, but not addressing the root cause problems, which is to do, deal with xenophobia and Islamophobia uh, and other kinds of marginalizations. Um, you know, I mean, in, in some places, I mean, the, the other thing that I think we need to also look at is the history of uh, people of most Muslim origin in different Western countries. So, I mean, the French experience, for example, is rather unique. You know, they have a history of colonizing North Africa. You know, the French people who are there are directly from their colonies. And arguably, they have an equal claim uh, to some of the sort of French wealth, <laughs> if you will, and for the French to isolate them in suburbs and for them to be more heavily incarcerated than the average French citizen, for them to have poorer employment, uh, you know, more poverty. I mean, these are factors one cannot ignore, right? And it's a French, it's a, it's a uniquely French problem. And then to say the Canadian Muslim experience is similar to the French Muslim experience is frankly horse shit, right? I mean, like you, you don't, you're not recognizing the multiplicity of, A, the multiplicity of Muslim experiences, B, the multiplicity of experiences of communities within the Muslim population, which are also distinct. They have distinct patterns of migration, distinct histories. And until you look at this through a historical lens, through an interdisciplinary lens, and through a lens that doesn't lend itself to easy modeling, I think the solutions are going to be recirculated, which is, which is what we find. It's, it's re- self-referential and, and a recirculated kind of um, you know, field. And Kun- Kunani kind of points to this very notion. I think. Absolutely. So do you, in your piece... Uh, uh, Jeff, with without a Molnar, you you approach it from the the police training point of view, um, and Kunani approaches it more in the academic and the the media realms. It kind of highlights this uh, radicalization has become a symbol. Where and you referenced it earlier, Fahad, where we we know what we're talking about. You don't even have to say the word Islam or Muslim. All you have to say is radicalization, and we know we all know what we're talking about, or we all have a, a common collective conscious, if you will, to borrow on some sociological literature uh, about what it is that we're talking about, and that's problematic when, or or do you think it's problematic when we draft policies, real governmental policies such as Prevent, or in Calgary there's Redirect, and uh, in Montreal there's uh, the Center for the Prevention of Radicalization Leading to to Violence. Uh, when we draft policies and interventions in the name, with the name radicalization, do you think that's almost like a synonym for a, a particular um, cultural group? Well, you know, I'm, I'm very critical. There's, there's, a, there's an earnest effort, again, to try and expand that, right? So there's, yeah. for, I'd say, almost a decade coming from the criticisms that this is really just code for Muslims. Mm-hmm. Uh, policing agencies and, and also, you know, the academic side have been trying to expand the label of radicalization to include neo-Nazis, um, the political left, and all kinds of de- different actors. And I'm actually very critical of that expansion. Yeah. 
in part because I think what we're all saying is that there's the connotation is 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 really about Muslims, and I think a point that you made earlier, Fahad, is really about you know there is a fixation with Muslim violence that is a product of the war on terror, and I think that you know it's it's for me it's problematic to talk about radicalization without the the broader context of the war on terror, and. And trying to kind of expand that concept is, is I, I, think, I, think, I think it's misplaced, even, mm-hmm. even when it's done in good intentions to talk about political violence. Like, ultimately, there is this fixation on Muslims, really, and even terrorism, okay, in, in, in a country like Canada is practiced on, on almost a, a willful naivete yeah. around violence, because it fundamentally is suggesting that otherwise, we have a, you know, we have a, a fairly nonviolent society. When the fact of the matter is, we have all kinds of violence, and a lot of it is political, it's ideological, it's all of these different things. We deal with a lot of violence, and I appreciate, you know, the the general um, <clears throat> inclination to try and want to reduce levels of violence. Yeah, yeah. But the fact of the matter is that Muslim political violence is a, is a statistically insignificant amount of violence that we deal with, particularly right? in Canada. <clears throat> Absolutely. You know, and like, yes, it commands a lot of news. European experience is a little bit different, but American experience a little bit different. But certainly in Canada, you know, when we're talking about levels of political violence in contrast of of other things, I think one of the most damaging aspects of radicalization is that it's commanded so many resources. It commands so much power. In a lot of ways, it recirculates this fixation with, with, with Muslims and bad Muslims and potentially radicalizing Muslims and Muslims who are too, too pious and Muslims who don't buy into Canada and all of these different things. And it translates into forms of kind of anti-immigration politics and regular good old-fashioned xenophobia. So I think the risks of, of expanding the topic actually are larger than the benefits of expanding the topic to include neo-Nazis and, and stuff, which is really interesting. And even if you, you know, I think neo-Nazis has been the way that they've expanded, you know, various different efforts have expanded most honestly. But even when you look at the way that radicalization has kind of been applied to the left or indigenous movements like that, it's still in piecemeal. It's not even done yeah. in any kind of earnest way. It's yeah. like they use the label of extremism, which is just a, it's a label and it's an identifier. It's not radicalization as a process, right? There's not necessarily a science to try and see different forms of politics as, as you know, this procedural form of, of people and their identity uh, and whether they're correct Canadians and citizens in different ways. So I think you know, I, I, I am, I think, increasingly entrenched in my position that trying to expand the notion of radicalization does more harm than it does good instead of replacing the conversation really about political violence or violence more generally, which I think we need to have an earnest conversation about neo-Nazis. And, and you know, the fact of the matter is that the political right and neo-Nazis in different forms of you know right-wing groups in canada are dramatically more violent right and like even the fixation with muslim and muslim violence you know even statistically it's just dramatically less even in terms of incidents and terrorism incidents which you don't we don't necessarily call the political right terrorism incidents mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm okay with that um but it's still politically motivated violence which i'm okay with i you know i think that's what we should call it yeah um and I think, you know, ultimately, the more and more we invest in radicalization, the, diff- the more and more difficult it is to expand discussions about political violence and the problems of political violence and even trying to reduce the 
forms and conditions that we do know that produces more and more likelihood of violence, not individual violence, but the kind of social conditions that does produce more violence in society. The, the other thing that's worth noting is that uh, state violence, you know, I mean, and state actors, whether we like to acknowledge it or not, are the perpetrators of perhaps the most violence, you know, because uh, a national war or uh, a national act uh, of uh, change in policy can produce the kinds of violence that individual actors just don't have the capacity or the scale to do, mm -hmm. right? So the war on terror, which Jeff mentioned, uh, you know, the number of people who have perished as a result of that war, the number of lives and livelihoods that have been impacted by by that action alone, by by the war on terror, the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, the continuous war, uh, the drone attacks of Pakistan, mm -hmm. and uh, you know what we are seeing in Syria, which you know whether we like it or not, is a product, direct product of Western foreign policy, as Kundanani, who you cited, very very. Uh, aptly points out, those are acts of violence too, mm -hmm. right? And and we don't want to bring that at the same level as acts of terrorist violence. We want to exceptionalize terrorist violence or exceptionalize radicalization. And that's, ultimately, that's unhelpful. Ultimately, that is done in the interest of solving a short-term problem, uh, but not addressing the real underlying reasons for why these social conditions that produce these acts of violence uh, come about. And, and I, so, so, you know, everything that Jeff said, I, you know, 100% agree with. This area, this field of radicalization has become, uh, I think, Jeff, you put this yesterday, you said to me yesterday, it's almost like a, uh, you, you get trapped in quicksand once you get into trying to, do we broaden the idea of, of radicalization? Do we make it more narrow. And I think that I would probably fall with you in, a, in agreement on if we were to broaden this idea or our, our understanding of radicalization, it might actually do more harm than good, add more noise um, to that particular um, concept. And I kind of want to finish off this podcast with questioning you both about where do you think the future of uh, radicalization uh, studies is going? Or where would you like it? to go. So, I mean, I do, so coming back to referencing our, uh, uh, you know, our sort of uh, two lenses on our initial meeting story, I, uh, I, there are two ways in which we can take this. Uh, and, you know, just like any, uh, any efforts of any, any efforts of struggle, I think you have to deploy multiple strategies. Um, Strategy one, I think we have talked about. There is an idea of how we think about this problem, how do we produce knowledge around this problem, and uh, you know uh, that's an academic discussion in large part at this point, which is the concept of radicalization, and you know whether we expand it, shrink it, you know reconceptualize it, use different theories to inform it, use different evidences uh, to to suggest new you know research agendas around this, right? Um, and I think that's great because that has a long-term effect, because uh, ultimately uh, policymakers are going to pick this up, but maybe it's another 10 years, 15 years, 20 years down the line, we don't know. But there is an, another tool that we have to use. <laughs> this is kind of goes back to uh, the, the case that Jeff narrated that I was making to him, which is you have to speak the language of the policymakers today. 
So you have to engage with them. You can't remain in silos where, you know, you're talking about these great ideas, but uh, they are really ideas that we are sharing uh, and, you know, talking about amongst ourselves. And I think the short-term strategy is to help move towards more humane strategies of dealing with radicalization. So yes, I'm 100% supportive of more money going into soft approaches to counter-radicalization than hard approaches to counter-radicalization. And I would, uh, you know, if some if, if a minister came to me and asked me for a recommendation, I would offer that recommendation. I would not be talking about, let's step back and rethink what we mean about radicalization, because that's not the tool that 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 would get me at least a short term relief of the problem um the the other thing i would say is that i think rat, counter radicalization which is the response the state response to radicalization should be moved out of the security industry and moved into the hands of the social care industry i think at the minimum what that will do is we have certain practices and certain knowledge bases in the social uh, social care industry you know social policy and 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 dealing with youth and dealing with unemployment and dealing with integration that are better and more humane tools of uh, dealing with uh, uh, and conceptualizing, it, even within the framework, the policy framework that we have, uh, the problem of radicalization, then, uh, then, 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 you know, I mean, the security industry, uh, as the famous saying goes, if you're a hammer, everything you look at looks like a nail. <laughs> and yeah. we certainly want to move away from that. Yeah, well, this takes us back in, in to the, you know, in a, in a way, you know, our initial conversations. And I, I do think if we look at criminology, there is all kinds of criminological theory from social disorganization to different forms of, you know, mixed sociological theories that say if we increase social organizations, if we increase redistrib redistributive mechanisms in society, we lower the levels of, of crime and violence in a society. And I think that, you know, in those answers aren't very appealing to radicalization studies because it's not going to maybe, it's not about stopping and predicting what's going to happen. It's about taking all kinds of different policy approaches that reduce levels of crime in society. And I think that ultimately, you know, there needs to be a very kind of practical, technical engagement um, that needs to try and shift um, and just the important work of, underlying human rights, underlining the, the problem with different forms of profiling, this kind of stuff, it just, it, it has to happen to try and just work against the, the tide uh, and, the, and the powerful forces that are going the other way. And I think that, you know, that work is really important. I think we do that work. I think teaching is part of that work and all these different research projects that we do. I'm still very skeptical. And I think they're ultimately that, you know, in a, in a much broader a much bro broader problem that we all face is that we are still in the midst of the war on terror in a similar way that we've been in the midst of the war on drugs, which gives us these kind of hammer and nails type of politics and policies, but politics and different forms of, of, of social dynamics and forces. And we are nowhere close to imagining ourselves outside of security governance, outside of just the amount of the weightiness of security weighs on us in all kinds of different ways. And I think we're the, you know, what a lot of sociologists of security really point out is the more and more we fixate, worry, govern, um, prioritize security, the more and more insecurity it produces. And I think that we're, we're stuck in that 
globally, right? Mm -hmm. We are living in more, uh, at least in terms of perception, more and more crises and 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 insecurity, instability in all kinds of different ways. And I think that that is self-referential and it reproduces itself. And we haven't been able to, in terms of different kind of social responses, imagine and be able to articulate a way outside of this reality that we're stuck in. And, you know, I think that's, that's or, uh, the generational challenge that we're all stuck in. I agree completely. I think that you both touch on some very interesting points there in terms of truly moving towards not just in our realm as social scientists, but also in the policy realm, moving towards treating radicalization as a matter of public health or as a matter of uh, social solidarity and social cohesion, I think, and, and trying to identify some of the underlying social context and moving away from this individual pathology model um, is a, a very fruitful and beneficial um, area. So I think you're, you're, I've really learned a lot from not only this podcast, but also um, chatting with you at this uh, wonderful conference um, in Winnipeg. So I thank you both for your um, great work uh, and thank you for coming on the pod. Can our listeners, if they're interested in more, can they go anywhere? Uh, websites, Twitters, any shout outs that you the have? internet. <laughs> Into the Google <laughs> land. And, um, but if, if you want a shout out, now's the time for a Twitter or a website shout out. I'm at last underscore a tweet on Twitter. Uh, so yeah, people are you know welcome to check it out. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for sitting down with me for the past hour and letting me pick your brains on this very, very important topic of radicalization. Uh, thank you, Derek. It was, uh, it was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of What's That Noise? If you enjoyed the show, please follow us on Twitter at WTNCast, at Derek Krim, or at Thomas N. Cook. And please subscribe to our channel on iTunes or Google Play Music. Until next time, keep listening for the noise.